Well, good morning. Happy Daylight Savings uh, weekend to you. For those of you uh, logging in late and watching this on replay because uh, you forgot, no worries there. Thank you for being here this morning. For those of you who made it here this morning, uh, it's, a good, uh, it's a good day. It is one of my favorite Sundays of the year, if not my favorite, uh, because it is Selection Sunday for the NCAA basketball tournament. It happens this week, and it also uh, initiates a week of uh, a good, uh, lots of basketball on television, lots of brackets, uh, lots of all of that stuff. In addition... Um, I don't know if you've checked your bank account this weekend, but for some of you, um, it was a good weekend as well uh, with some stimulus money. And I saw that those two things came together. And what I'll say was my favorite thing that I saw on the internet this week, the, what you saw in the video was Eric's, and that was pretty good. Uh, but I thought that uh, perhaps this tweet was a touch better. Uh, and if you want to put that on there, um, <clears throat> told my wife we make too much to get the stimulus this time. So now she gets to humble brag to her friends about how rich we are. And I get to bet $2,800 on basketball and everybody wins. <laughs> So uh, if you know uh, what's coming up for me this week, you know that that's relevant. So that's exciting. And uh, anyways, and four kids, uh, it's a little different. So uh, <laughs> hey, welcome to Eastlake. Glad that you're here. Uh, today we kick off a brand new teaching series called Exodus. Uh, it's a series on making sense of Easter. And if you are a first time guest, um, you couldn't have picked a better day to come check us out. Um, because uh, we, we teach in series here, and every once in a while, uh, you can only start one you know, every three or four weeks or six weeks or so, and so um, it's like you're starting at the very beginning of a movie. Um, we're trying to be a church where we don't typically like church. If you've uh, come from another church, that's fine too, but if, uh, a lot of times we're most appealing to people who are like, I've never really found a place to fit in at any church, um, and uh, I've, I've got some issues with the organizational religion as a whole and all, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's totally awesome. I totally understand that the... Uh, the barriers that have kept you from that, but we're, we're glad that however you found us, whether you're watching this online or on replay or whatever, um, we're, we're glad that you are making this a part of it. Easter is right around the corner for us. Um, it's April 4th. And also, here, here's what we do know as well. Um, this weekend, on Thursday at like 4 o'clock or 3 o'clock or something like that, uh, Governor Inslee came on the uh, internet and told us about phase three on March 22nd. And that does change a few things probably for us in terms of our church. And we were planning on reopening on the 28th with certain things in place. Um, and the question is, well, how do, I've had this question three times this morning and multiple times over the weekend. What does that change for us in terms of phase three? And the answer to that question is we just don't know. Um, we were told that we don't work on Fridays. And so it was like Thursday, four o'clock. Here's some, here's some great news. Now go off, you know, and we haven't, we haven't met together as a team to kind of discuss and discern what this looks like for our church. But we do know March 28th is going to be an exciting day for us of partial reopening uh, for kids areas. Uh, and then the following week is Easter Sunday. And uh, we, we are excited with that. So what we, we, the plan has been all along, we're going to spend a few weeks leading up to Easter, April 4th, on doing a little bit of Easter prep um, so that we are um, more aware of what's going on, more excited about the, the possibility of Easter. Not just like Easter just kind of like comes up and surprises us, but I, I figured it might be a good time to, to study uh, what makes Easter kind of so special for us. And we're going to do it leading up to the event so that when it's here, you, you appreciate it more. In the same way, when I was a youth pastor a long time ago, I, uh, we had some missionary friends who were stationed in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland, or just south of Edinburgh. And uh, so we decided to take a youth team to Scotland. We'd pre- previously always gone to like Mazatlan or, or somewhere in Mexico or Honduras or something like that. But this was like a weird, we're going to combo um, doing missions work in Scotland uh, with kind of an exposure of go see a part of the world that you may have never seen before. And so a bunch of uh, sophomores, juniors, and seniors in high school and myself and a couple of leaders 
um, got on planes and flew over there. But in, in preparation for this, I wanted them to experience it like in its fullness. I didn't want them to be surprised by this. And so in the months leading up to our, our trip to Scotland, uh, we would meet together and we'd pray together and we'd you know, grow as a group together. And we would talk about, I would talk about both the work that we're going to be doing there um, and then also what we're going to see there. And so I would have slideshows and videos and I would be doing research with them and I bought Scot- a Scotland for Dummies book. That's real life. I'm not making that up. And uh, a, like tour guides and all this kind of stuff. And I would show them pictures like the picture that you're going to see here of Edinburgh Castle, um, which is like on top of uh, a hill in downtown Edinburgh. And it looks a little bit like if you, um, if you could imagine a little bit like Hogwarts, Hogwarts or whatever, however you pronounce that. I'm saying it wrong. I don't, I'm not a Harry Potter fan. Uh, but Andrew, you got that photo. Can you put that photo of, Ed, Ed, there it is right here. This is the castle. Uh, and then that's St. Giles Cathedral. And then you can't see it, but there's a mile long stretch from, Saint, uh, from the castle all the way down. It passes John Knox house. And on this strip is a bunch of, it's like a downtown, but it goes on for like literally a mile. And that's where they do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is like a world famous outdoor theater sort of thing. And at the bottom of the hill, about at the bottom of the mile is Holyrood Castle, where the queen uh, of England comes and stays for one week a year, just to kind of show them like, hey, I'm still in charge, even though I'm only here a week a year. Um, and so you've got the castle at top. You've got, or so, yeah, the castle at top and, and the palace at the bottom and the parliament building. It was, and I wanted to walk him through that because I was like, hey, we're going to be walking these streets in a few months. And I want you to know and I want you to feel it. And I want you, when you get there, I don't want you to be surprised. I want you to anticipate the trip. And then while you're there, understand some of the history involved in this. And in, 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 uh, understand that on this strip was also the house of John Knox, who was a Scottish Re- Reformationist preacher who kind of uh, pulled uh, these, this, um, this religion sort of thing out of Catholicism and into this Reformation piece. He was a catalyst for this era and then ended up dying for what he believed. It was, it was amazing. It was a really incredible trip. And right now you're sitting there and you're probably seeing this picture, hearing me tell these stories about this and thinking to yourself, I need to go there someday before I die. And you do. Edinburgh's fantastic and it's great. And on the flip side of this, to kind of show you a little bit of the opposite of this, there's a show that's been on Disney Plus recently that some of you probably have watched called WandaVision and I have not watched it at all. And I, I think one of the reasons that I haven't watched it is because I know that it weaves in a bunch of history about like the Marvel universe. And I've never seen a single Marvel, Marvel movie. I'm just not into superhero movies. And so I don't want to watch this. Okay. So on, on and, and, and people are like, oh, I'll watch it with you and explain how the, there's Easter eggs about all these kind of things. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. I, I have no, there's no, there's no pull for me to watch this because I don't know the understanding or the background of it. And I really have no interest in doing with that. And it's, it's fine with no desire. So I'm, I'm trying, on one sense, I'm trying to build in some historical background for this so that they'll experience it fully. And on the other side, I'm trying to avoid it completely because I don't want to watch, I don't want to spend more time on another show. So with that in mind, we can understand how there can be some pre-work that helps us to understand fully something that comes into play a little bit later. All that to say, uh, Lauren and I, uh, have, our, our, uh, our werewolf pastor, have been reading through a book on the crucifixion by a woman named Fleming Rutledge. It's been a fantastic read. And in it, there was a line on a chapter on the book of Exodus and Easter that really stood out to me that I, I thought, gosh, I need to kind of deal with that. And this is, so this is me kind of working out my own, my own shortcomings in this way. And the line was basically this. The early Christians saw the Exodus story as the best lens from which to understand the death and the resurrection 
of Jesus the Messiah. Just to refresh your memory, um, Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament. And then there's like 37 books from there to the New Testament. And then you get kind of the, the birth, uh, uh, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus all in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John in, in the New Testament. And so you have got two very drastic different things with probably, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 years in between those two periods of time. And what she's saying in this is that the early church as they're trying to make sense of we just saw someone who we think might be the Messiah. We just saw somebody who was our personal friend who did some pretty miraculous things get crucified in the most public, shameful way that you could die in that time. And then we saw him, or at least some of us saw him or said we saw him rise from the dead and now he's no longer here. And we're trying to make sense of what do we do with Jesus and what they did was read back into Exodus and they used Exodus to say, here's what we do with Jesus. What does all of this mean? Well, what perhaps might help us understand what all of this means is to read back and look back at our history about what Exodus had us go through or what we remember about Exodus and read it side by side with these two different things, which is not unnatural for us in terms of like normal day politics and modern day politics. Occasionally, uh, we'll say hey, if, uh, if, if we don't understand history, history is due to repeat itself or whenever some new administration comes in that we don't like, we'll read into kind of past things about, well, that's the trajectory that the Nazis went down. That's the trajectory that blah, 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 all went down. We're reading, we're reading the present moment using the past to kind of inform that reality for us. And so we do this even today, and they absolutely did this. So for us, as we approach Easter on April 4th, and we say, all right, that day, it's going to be totally normal for you to show up and expect me to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, if I didn't on Easter, you'd rightly walk out of this building and or have multiple things to say on a Connect card, as you should. So if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about what the early church would have used to read side by side to inform what they would need to understand or what we think we need to know. Because there's no way, like even, even when Paul kind of writes about things later, he's writing 20, 30, 40 years after the resurrection. They've had some time to kind of process these things. This is their example of, this is how they process it. This is the lens by which they looked at to do this. So the premise of the whole week, four parts of the series, uh, Lauren's gonna speak on one of these parts next week, but to understand Easter, you really do need to understand Exodus. And I know it might feel weird to talk about an Old Testament book that happened at the very beginning talking about Jesus, but I think it's gonna help in this sort of way. And I know it's kind of a convicting and lofty claim, and it's not, a, a, it, it's not something that um, comes in late, like, oh yeah, I can kind of see that connection. Um, honestly, like for them, as we'll see, I, it was more than just, oh, I see how you could connect the dots, which is I, I feel is what people are doing with WandaVision, even though I've never seen the show or any of the movies. They're like, oh yeah, remember how she also punched somebody? And that like draws this back to this old Captain Marvel, whatever, and you're like, dude, come on, they're punching every time. There's, no, there's not a real connection there. There's a sense in which you could say, well, that might not be a real connection. I just think that there's gonna be some super obvious things that they would say, no, this is how we make sense of what we're dealing with. Here's what we know, here's what we do in this way. So um, to, to start things off, uh, I need to uh, talk about how Paul, for Paul, much of Paul's talk or his conversation or what we see, and Paul, again, wrote much of the New Testament, a lot of letters to different churches, churches that he mentored, people that he saw himself as responsible for, as kind of like their pastor or external pastor to kind of offer advice or whatever. Whenever he has mentions of the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection of Jesus, 
there are two themes that emerge in two different various forms that I think are interrelated, but they show up in two different ways. So whenever Paul talks about the resurrection or crucifixion of Jesus, it kind of themes that it has, there's two different deliverance themes involved in this. One is there's sin and guilt for which atonement needs to be made. Some sort of, um, some sort of atonement, some sort of, I've, I've caused, I've done something wrong. I need to make something back up. This would be something that they would be used to in like a sacrificial system for Exodus. This is something that we're all used to, uh, whether you grew up Catholic, whether you grew up religious or church or whatever, you've shown up to church and you've assumed I've done something bad. Maybe this last week, maybe this morning, right? And I've got to make some sort of atonement, which is why I'm here, which is why I'm giving money. Everybody look, I'm giving money, which is why I, 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 uh, I listen to a worship song and I feel conviction. This is why I do things. I show repentance in some certain way because I know that I've kind of done something personally wrong and I'm trying to make up for it by being a better person. That is, we are doing that whether we're religious, uh, whether we are, uh, uh, would categorize it as overtly religious or not. Even when we're non-religious, even when we're like, I don't really believe in God or anything, we, we would say, I'm trying to be a good person to make up for all of the other things that I do in, in life that I know are not great or this past life that I've done, right? So we're, we're sort of used to this. And this, when, when Paul writes about this, this resonates with us and makes sense. But there's also a second theme of deliverance that shows up in, uh, in Paul's writing. Uh, that I think resonates most with this idea of an Exodus story. There is slavery, bondage, and oppression from which humankind needs to be delivered. And what this means is um, that there is some sort of a, a, a power that sin has over us, that we live in an existence that we are in bondage or slavery to some sort of a mentality of sin, something that is destructive to us, that we have no help over, that we need to be rescued from. So in one sense, this is a personal, I have a personal responsibility to do something for, about, about this. And in this sense, in my mere existence, there's a sense of corporate guilt or just because I'm a part of humanity means that I live in a broken world that is under sin that I need an external rescuer to come from. And both of these things are interrelated. There is no, well, that's what he's saying here, and, the, and this is what he's saying here, and, and, and they, and they are, are two different things, or he's talking about two different types of sins or whatever like that. There's a, there's a both and complement to us. Now, here's the thing about us. We are familiar with the first one. You've, heard, you've gone to churches before, and the pastors shook his finger at you or talked to you or done something in a certain way, or the songs that we sing or the, the hymns or the, the, the words to the lyrics of the worship songs, are, are, we're, we're good at this. We're really good at this. You, you're good at receiving guilt from somebody in a position like me, okay? Um, and, and then probably trying or attempting to do something about it or at least looking like you're doing something about it, right? It's this one right here, this idea of corporate guilt, this idea of uh, uh, we are under the power of something we need an external rescuer. A lot of times we would say, I don't need anything. Well, like we're, I'm very, very self-sufficient. I'm broken, but I have the ability to fix it. And this is saying, I don't have the ability to fix it. I need somebody to rescue me. The story of Exodus is the people living under 400 years of slavery, crying out to God, do something, break us from this yoke of slavery, this yoke of bondage. We can't do it by ourselves. We need something beyond this. And Paul talks about that. He just talks about it in both different ways. And sometimes around Easter, this is harped on and this is overlooked. And so what I want to do as we look at Exodus is really show how the Exodus story highlights this second one for us in a big way. It's the second of these that the Exodus theme truly 
it merges into. So let me illustrate with this. Um, in a couple of weeks, our family is going to participate in a Seder dinner with a couple of our friends. We have um, some friends that are involved in this church that we've just decided it's informal. It's not like a, a group that's going to be, you know, we don't have a, 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 we're not on the community marketplace. We just decided we have, we're in similar seasons of life. We have kids around the same ages and we like each other and we've gotten together a few times and we don't like dread getting together. And so we get together every, every once in a while, less during the pandemic, obviously, but, um, but more so as it's kind of in, in this uh, way out or whatever. But uh, we are going to participate in another Seder dinner. We've done, I think, two or three of these beforehand. And it's a Passover meal that Jewish tradition would have families and, and, uh, and uh, not just uh, intrinsic families, but like broad families. I, I'm forgetting the word right there. I can't think of it, but um, you would, ext- extended families, yes. You bring extended families in to kind of share this big giant feast meal together. And it's a ritual meal commemorating Passover, the Passover that shows up in the book of Exodus with the angel passing over the houses of the the people with the blood on the doorpost and whatever. If you grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you're like, wait, whoa, whoa, slow down a little bit. I'll get there. Hang on just a second. But there would be various courses within this meal that represent the various themes of the Exodus event. They would try and reenact what the Israelites went through uh, in the different stages at which it transgressed. And each course is like, remember this was when this happened and this is when you eat it and together you, you time it. There's a book that's called the Haggadah that you, it's a, it's a prayer book or, or like a manual or like a how-to kind of read through and everybody takes this matzo bread or this unleavened bread and at this point they dip it in and they dip it twice and then you consume it. And there's four glasses of wine involved for the different four levels of uh, messages that come and a lamb that's cooked on a Traeger just like they used to do it back in the old times. And, uh, and some of you are like, this sounds amazing. You had me at four glasses of wine. I know, I understand. To this day, Jews continue to do participate, not everybody, but like these Orthodox Jews will continue to pay, participate in Seder dinners. And as they go through and as they read from these texts, the thing that they say so often in the pronouns that they use are we instead of they when they tell the story of the Exodus. They would say things like, when we were in bondage in Israel, when we needed to be rescued, we, when, when, when we killed a lamb to, and put it on the doorpost of our home. And they're pulling from this tradition, this biblical tradition of identifying themselves with the people who experienced this as if it's a part of us. And for example, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, Deuteronomy again was um, the, the Israelites have spent 40 years wandering around the wilderness. They're about to go into the promised land. And Abraham, or uh, uh, Moses, excuse me, um, teaches them one last sermon uh, to be like, hey, let's not forget this as we go into this new land. Let's not forget where we came from. Uh, and so he begins to talk about this. And it's this extended long sermon. And in it, he says, a wandering air, there, there's gonna be this dialogue or there's gonna be this monologue that everybody's gonna remember. And we're gonna recite it together. And it begins with this, a wandering Aramean was my father. And everybody in the whole group would say, a wandering Aramean was my father. And they're referencing Abraham, right? They're saying this, this guy who left Ur, went into the wilderness. We all come from the same thing. He was my father. Now, somebody wouldn't sit there and go, no, Carl's your father. They'd be like, well, you know what I mean, right? What we're saying is we all come from this one spot. A wandering Aramean was my father. This is intentional and true to the biblical tradition and shows up in Deuteronomy. And then it's carried off into tradition uh, throughout the uh, exile when they go into Babylon. And out of that, one of the prophets named Amos writes this in chapter two, verse six and 10. Thus says the Lord, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is what they understood hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. 
as the generation that left Egypt and made their way into the promised land have died off, by the way, generation after generation after generation. And yet years later, they're saying this. This is what God says to us. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And nobody says, well, not me. I mean, not me. This is our problem with like corporate misunderstandings of corporate guilt, right? And so we have an issue a lot of times even today and how modern day reflects of people saying, well, there's corporate, whatever, racism, structural racism or whatever in our country. And we'd be like, well, not me. I mean, and we're like, I know we're not talking about you specifically. I'm just saying you feed into this system that does this, right? And whether you're right or wrong, I'm not here to like debate any of that, but that's the understanding of going, there's, there's a corporate thing in, involved in this. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. The old story about the fathers and the mothers become this new story for the generation just emerging who then become actors in the story as their parents and grandparents did before them. It's this continuation, this passing of the baton onto them and saying, we did this together. This is us. This is what we, this is the God that we serve and the, what he wants to do in our lives too. This, in the same way, I thought, of, uh, like, how do I illustrate this even more? Um, in our family, uh, Kylie's grandpa, we call him Bompa, reads the night before Christmas to the kids every year. Now he lives on the West side and they haven't traveled home because they're getting to that age and plus COVID and all that kind of stuff, right? And so for the last couple of years, he's read it over speakerphone and or FaceTime. FaceTime, if he can figure it out, but usually it's over the speakerphone, okay? For whatever reason. So, but the kids all gather together and he reads this story. And eventually, one day, he's not going to be there. And then it's probably going to be Pappy, right? Pappy is, is my wife's dad. He's probably going to take over the mantle of reading the kids uh, the night before Christmas uh, on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, and then someday, it's probably going to be me. And I'm going to be old, decrepit, and finally have gray hair. And then uh, I'm going to be reading this story uh, to them. And, it's gonna, and, I, and I, see, I see, we all see the transgression of this, right? We see the tradition. And I can see in Bompa that someday that's going to be me to my grandkids or great-grandkids or, or, or however it works out. And we, we, so in this, this tradition, we go, okay, I can, I, not only are we doing this, but I'm tying myself into previous generations and connecting the generations that were past to the ones that are future and making this happen. That's what's happening. That's the story of the Exodus as it plays out. And to not see that in the Easter moments is to really miss out on something significant about the Easter moments. If the story stayed as a stirring narrative of a past episode, however inspirational it is, then it's not the life-transforming story that ancient Israel knew it to be. Um, and now, uh, so then I'm going to skip a part and then come back into that in the podcast or whatever. But um, So in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 and 17, here's what it says. This is the instructions to the people. This is, this is how this tradition began, and this is why it keeps going. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an ordinance forever. As they exit out of this, and as God does this amazing thing, he reminds them, listen, I don't want this to be forgotten. You're gonna do this in a way that's gonna remember what happened. I want you to remember what happened. Do this in remembrance of what I've done for you. And this is not simply, again, a remembrance of, uh, like, don't forget it happened. Remembering, in this context, has a present and active sort of thing involved with it. And to illustrate that a little bit for you, it's like those times when your dad reminds you as an adult kid now, hey, don't forget about your mom, right? 
whether it's on their anniversary or her birthday, or you're trying to train your kids to be like, don't forget about your mom. And at no point as a kid, do you be like, okay, remember to remember that mom exists, right? That's not what he's saying to you. I'm not trying to remember that she exists. He's telling me that, so I'll buy her a card or some flowers or at least call her on her anniversary or birthday, right? There's an, a present and active part of this. Do something about the remembering. So as God leads these people out of Exodus, he's saying, I want you to do something. You're gonna have a feast together. You're gonna do this Seder meal. This gonna be, there's gonna be a programmatic way in which you do this. And all of that is this active present remembering in the community of other people. And it's tying generations to generations. And there's, there's, there's a part of it that's not just remembering that it happened, but what's the active thing involved in this? What are we reminding ourselves of? That we need to be rescued that we are under a bondage and a power that is external to us and we need an external rescuer to come pull us out of this. That there are some messes that we cannot clean up for ourselves. And a religion that only focuses on, you guys, we gotta do better, we can do this if we just try harder a little bit when you leave today, go try harder, let's all try it and let us know next week how you did, then it misses out on a very important aspect of this thing. And Jesus' death was not just simply, he covers, uh, his blood covers our sins and we don't even know what that necessarily means. We, we, we miss the, the point of him saying, I am that external rescuer to come and remove you from the bondage or the, the oppressive power of sin or the destructive nature of sin in our life, which is why the Seder dinner uh, supper was not a, solely a memorial of God's saving actions in the past, but an appropriation of the same saving power in the present, which is why it's so significant that when all four gospels record Jesus sharing a Passover meal mere hours before his arrest and his eventual death and burial and resurrection, he has this Seder dinner with his disciples. It shows up, we're gonna read Luke's version of it, but you pick, a, pick one of the gospels, all four of them have it. They're building up towards this and they all say the same thing or close to the same thing. When the hour came, Jesus and the apostles reclined at a table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he's, this is one of the cups of the four cups of wine, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the wine or fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's going through this long dialogue and that would be a t- t- topic for another Sunday somewhere. But, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave that, uh, this to them saying, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. He's changed this now. He's taken wine and bread and not made it about what, I, what God did for us in the past. He's changing the pronouns and he's changing the story around. He's basically in communicating this in the same way that God interacted and rescued you back then. I'm doing this with myself now and you won't understand this in the moment. You're thinking we're just taking a meal together and remembering, but someday you're gonna look back at this and all four of you or, all, or four of you are gonna write this down for future generations to say in, in this act right here, we are reminded and, and are actively present to reminded that God interacted as an external person to rescue us from that which we could not rescue ourselves from. Do this in remembrance of me. Literally the exact same words that were done in Exodus chapter 12. This is, this is him saying in that same way that you were rescued, I'm rescuing you now. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying this uh, cup is the new covenant, a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out 
for you. He's using this ancient saving event as a prototype, underscoring the active, something completely new in our time, generational thing. He brought us from bondage into freedom, from sin into righteousness, and from death into life. And so from early on, from early on, Jesus's death for the early church always represented a new Passover. Jesus's death was a new Passover and his resurrection is a new Exodus. This week, today, we're talking about this idea of a new Passover. In two weeks, we're gonna look at what a new Exodus meant with his resurrection. How does his resurrection lead us out of this bondage into this new life? But for them, it's important to understand the early church saw the death of Jesus. And when they're trying to make sense of it, they're realizing the Passover's changed. Passover now says something different in this way. There is a new way for us to see how God's work has done something for us. It made so much sense back then. We've kind of had years to kind of figure this out. And now as we look at Jesus thing, now it's helping us get, oh, I see what's going on here. It's rescuing us from something we couldn't see for ourselves. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old leavened bread, with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's something uh, interesting here uh, about this that I think is, is really hard to grasp, and it's something that I'm even processing through myself, but this idea of preservation from death. This Passover thing, the event was this, uh, this angel of darkness that came through and killed all the firstborns unless they had this, uh, this blood of a lamb uh, posted on their doorpost. And for them, it was, we are preserved from the effects of death if we can follow along in this way. If we are willing to do this, we can have a God who preserves us and saves us from this idea of death, right? So that is, uh, that is a, a external way of looking at sin that I think is an important filter to look at. Um, this week, uh, this weekend, let me, let me try and wrap it around with this. Um, I was out on the back patio painting um, our, we have like a pergola thing. And so I was painting, which is why I have got a little bit of paint still in my hands, because no matter how much you do, I'm not ill. There might be some people going, I think he's sick. Um, I'm not. It's just a little bit of paint left over. And I'm out there painting. And we have a little swing that some of the neighbor kids come and play on and whatever. And, and so uh, as I'm out there and I'm doing this and I've got music playing, there's um, a bunch of the kids are playing out there. And one of them, her name's Gianna. She's six years old and she's like tiny for six. And she's like a little, like a Mary Lou Who kind of face kind of thing, you know, like, um, or uh, like Miracle on 34th Street. What's that girl's name? That's what she looks like. So really cute, really sweet, whatever. And uh, so she stands on the fence as I'm painting and she goes, hey, hey, Grayson's dad, right? And uh, I said, hi, Gianna. And she says, hey, um, do you know that bush in your front yard? And uh, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm like, maybe. I mean, we've got like, I don't know, lots of bushes in the front yard. Do I know that bush? I don't know, maybe, maybe do I? She says, the one that has thorns. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. the rose bush. Yeah, the rose bush. She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know why it has thorns? And I, and I was like, well, it's like a defense mechanism, right? It's like, the, I didn't want to go into like evolutionary design for her, but like, you know, it has this really nice flower. And so instead of, they didn't want the animals to eat it. So there's like these thorns that kind of protected it and its stuff. And she's like, yeah. So I begin to say, well, I think it's like a defense mechanism. I think I just left it at that just because that's what I wanted to do. Anyways, um, there's a long pause and she like is trying to think about it. And then she's like, not satisfied. She goes, do you know why it has thorns? 
And, uh, and I'm like, no, but I, I'm, I think you have an idea. And I'm like, is this girl about to sing Brett Michaels poison to me? Is this what happens? Like, is she about to? So I was like, all right, I'll bite. Yana, why does it, why does this rose, why do rose bushes have thorns? And she said, because Eve ate the apple in the garden and sin entered into our world. And thorns remind us that sin has us. And I was said, I literally smiled and I'm thinking in my mind, did I just get Jesus juked by my six-year-old neighbor? Does she even know I'm a pastor? Like what is going on? She is trying to save the neighbor who's painting his backyard. Her phrase literally was, sin entered our world and thorns remind us that sin has us. And I smiled and I laughed and I tucked it away and I said, I'm going to preach about that on Sunday. And she doesn't even know she's going to come up in this, this talk. But, um, but again, like even the way that she phrased it, I don't think that she knows the depths at which she's talking, but this idea that it's a reminder that sin has us. The common thinking that we have, and maybe the one that you grew up in, is that we have sin, or we have sinned. Like that we, you live long enough and you get scars on your body because you made dumb decisions, and everybody has stories about scars and all that kind of stuff, and sin kind of operates similarly in that way. You live long enough, you make dumb enough decisions, uh, we have sin, and some of us have more than others or whatever. That's the common way of understanding it. The less common, more uncommon way of understanding it is that sin also has us. And I think both are true. I don't, I don't want to disparage this and talk about, you know, don't worry, you don't have any personal responsibility or culpability in what you, how you do with your life. That's absolutely true. But also, this is also true. Sin also has us, that we live in this broken world that um, we need external help that we can't provide for ourselves. There's nothing, there's no amount of effort or try or do more that you can do to make this thing work. That Paul talks about both. And the Exodus story reminds us this is, this is absolutely true. They could have done nothing to remove themselves out of this bondage. There was this external thing that came that preserved them from death. And that is the exact same thing that is being offered to us from Easter. Um, we find ourselves under this broken system and the story of Je- the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus, the death and burial, what does it mean for us? How do we make sense of Easter? What, what does it mean for us? It means that an option for a preservation from the destructive nature of sin has been offered to us. And it's an already but not yet sort of scenario in, in that we still die and that we're still, we, we cry out and we're broken and we still find ourselves doing dumb things and saying, God, forgive me. I don't even know what I'm doing. Um, uh, and, 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 I'm, and, I'm, and I'm definitely not there yet. And I, the liberation has not taken place fully. And yet we cling to this hope that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection mean that there is also an option for us, that there is something out there, that there is a hand down, a, a, a rescuer that is external to us that can rescue us from the power of this thing. We need something external to rescue us from the destructive power of sin and the promise is that death eventually loses its power. And this is the part of the talk where normally I would say, and right now we're gonna have a couple of people who are gonna go grab some communion supplies. They're gonna come up to the front. The band's gonna play one last song in the guitar or the piano or the piano or whatever. And, and we're gonna receive communion. Um, and uh, because of all the stuff, we can't do that right now, right? And so maybe if you're watching at home, you've got bread and, and uh, wine in the kitchen. It's 10.30, go ahead, go for it. You know what I mean? Religiously, whatever. Um, but 
We're not going to do that today uh, for lots of, and I cannot wait. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait to do that once again. Not because I super love our bread or our wine or whatever. I'm just saying that community aspect of this. And, and that's what we would be doing right now. But since we're not, um, we, when we participate in this, when we participate in communion and when we experience Easter together, when on that Sunday we dress nicely, we come with an expectation about, listen, whatever is going on in my world, for a moment I need to focus on this. Um, we participate in this doing in remembrance of me. We, and we do it, we're not just thinking about the actions that Jesus took place in the upper room and whether that actually happened or whether there actually was uh, Israelites who like moved out of Egypt because archeological evidence says, well, maybe not. That sounds kind of ridiculous. All, all of this, there, there's no doubt in my mind that in the, for their people group, something took place and something transpired for them to understand or think in this way. We acknowledge that in those moments, in this moment, as I dip the bread into the juice, he is present and acting with the community gathered at the table in the present time. That is a thing there that ties generations to generations. And we would say his blood broken for me. Even though in, those, in that moment, Jesus' disciples understood this for them personally or, or, or thinking that way, we are tying ourselves into this saying, that's for me too. There is a sacrifice that's, that, that I needed to be made to rescue me externally from the power of sin that I could not do anything in and of myself to do it. I have responsibility, that's part of it, culpability and, and whatever, but there's a, a sense in which there, uh, there's a power of brokenness, a power of death that, uh, that I need to be rescued from. And so I, I, I participate in this and I cling to the hope that Christ as the Savior does this for me. Guys, that's the significance of the Easter moment. And to, to read through Luke's version or John's version of the upper room and not to have the backdrop of how this has played out for generation to generation and through from, from the inception point in Exodus and through that point is to miss out entirely and to maybe perhaps lose sight of a corporate sense of a need for a savior. So my hope, my prayer is that not only in Passover, but as we'll see in, in the Exodus story it, itself, that it leads us to a greater understanding of Easter and a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that somehow, some way, these kind of insights and these kind of stories and this re-looking back on things as we read it kind of side by side with the narrative that we are so familiar with uh, during Easter that perhaps this year um, it resonates a little bit more and it reminds us of kind of where we stand and why your son's death, burial, and resurrection was such a message of mercy uh, and of grace and of hope. So let us cling to that and whatever it is that we're doing with uh, our week this week. Give us the wisdom to know what it looks like in our lives and the way that we interact with our, with our kids and with our, our parents and with our, our family members and with our neighbors or whatever. And, uh, and uh, the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen.